So welcome again. So as I mentioned, we are, we are coming to the close of our uh, sermon series through the book of Colossians. We are wrapping it up today. We're doing the last bit of chapter 4, and uh, we will be diving into the Psalms next week, uh, but we're going to see what God has to say for us, uh, to us from the end of Colossians and how him describing his fellow workers and uh, talking to people and how it is beneficial for us as well. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word, that we have it, that we can read it and reflect upon it, that we can see how you've moved throughout history, how you have built your church person by person, people by people, city by city, nation by nation. And Lord, let us be encouraged by that. Let us be convicted of how you are moving and what that calls us to as well. Lord, I just pray for this time as we open up your word that you bring it to life in our minds and our hearts that we can be yours, that we can see what you have done for us, and we can see how you call us to respond with all of our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we think about the church, the church at large, you know, we think about the church and we think about local churches together, and it, it makes it very clear, the Bible makes it very clear that the local church, this, like people like us gathering together, is the expression of that big church, the, the global church that includes people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Well, that's a pretty big task to think that one unifying body together that believes the same things is, is connected together no matter where we are on this globe, no matter maybe even our backgrounds or, or our social economic status or, or how we were raised, no matter these things, the church brings people together. And that's amazing. You have to ask, why? how can that happen? How can that happen? What brings the church together? What binds it together? And that is that we're, we're united by our faith in who God is and who His Son is. That it can take people from, from different continents who don't speak the same language, who look very different, but yet bring them together part of the same body, His body, the church. Because that is how God has designed his people to be. From the get-go, you see this, this emphasis that people were going to be coming in and his body, his people were going to be make, made up of people from every tribe, nation. And when we look toward the future and what John sees in Revelation, we see that exact same thing actually happening. In Revelation 7, 9, and 10, it says this. He says, look, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That the trajectory that we see in the future that John saw through his vision from the Lord is that in heaven there will be a multitude of saints from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So what brings this multitude together? God. He's saving us, his love lavished upon the undeserved, changing us and making us into his people. Basically what brings us together is the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. 
that we see the church being made one people because God being at work in our lives. And that is what we see at the end of the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Colossians chapter 4. If you don't, have no worries. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And we're going to read these last few verses that seem, on the surface maybe, if you've read these before, just a list of names and what people have been doing. But I would argue it's much more than that. And as always, a long list of weird names is fun to read. So here we go. Starting in verse 7, if you remember, Paul, uh, Paul just gave some final instructions to the Colossians, and now he says this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barabbas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and to her, in her, uh, the church in their house. And when I, this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And, so they, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to um, <coughs> Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You know, a good soundtrack changes a movie. When a, a movie or a show has that soundtrack that seems to align perfectly with the emotions or what's going on in a scene, it heightens the experience. When that perfect song seems to hit, it's like, yeah. And sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I kind of imagine there's a soundtrack playing as well. And so when I'm reading sections like this of Paul's letters, I cannot help but think of Neil Young's song, One of These Days. If you don't know it, I'm not going to sing it because that won't help you know it any better. But if you're not familiar for it, with it, the lines of this song say, One of these days I'm going to sit down and write a long letter to all the good friends I've known. And I'm going to try and thank them all for the good times together. Well, that's very apt what Paul is doing here because that's what he's doing. He's writing this letter to the, the Colossians in, this, in, uh, in the city that he hasn't even been to, but now at the end, he's writing this letter and he's mentioning people who they know or in, that they might meet in the future, and he's talking about them and how they're involved in this ministry. He's, he's writing this letter. And on the surface, when we read this, we might just see these people that have names that sound kind of peculiar, maybe names we've heard before, but it's easy to just put this separate from us and say, well, that's this part of the context of Paul writing this letter. But I think when we read this and we see these people and see how God has moved in these people's lives, we actually see something about ourselves as well. We see something about the church and how God moves through the church. We see, first of all, that this 
that Paul, even though he's maybe the most famous uh, Christian in this context, has this robust team around him. People who traveled with him, people who suffered with him, people who are imprisoned with him, people who he's sending, people who he's receiving, people that are Christians who are holding churches in their own homes. And so we see this robust nature of the Christian community. People from all these different backgrounds and, and different um, cities even coming together and we can see what are we supposed to take from this section. I would just offer this. Grace binds the church together. Grace binds the church together. That's shorthand of saying the grace of God, this, this, this fact that he has saved us through Jesus Christ, this is what brings the church together, and it binds the church together. It takes people from these different backgrounds, these, these different cities, and it brings them together and gives them common purpose, gives them common um, uh, mission. It gives them a common family, which is the church, that grace binds the church together, that Paul once again is stating this amazing fact that God builds his church based upon the saving grace that he grants to his people, not because they deserve it, but because he loves them. And he builds each believer into his body all because of what Jesus Christ has done. Grace binds the church together. That's what we see in Colossians chapter 4. And we see that, I think, because it makes it very notable in what I call the bookends of grace. The very last thing that Paul writes in this book, in this letter, is grace be with you. Which if you remember this whole letter, we go back to verse 2, and we see that's actually one of the first things he wrote to them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is not unique to the book of Colossians. Read all of Paul's letters and you see this exact same pattern take place. He starts with grace be to you and peace from God our Father, and he ends with grace be to you. And so he bookends all of his communication with Christians with this idea that grace starts it and grace finishes it. And usually he's talking about grace right in the middle of it. And so he's showing us, even how he writes, that grace binds the church together, that grace is what the foundation of our life is. In Christ, it's all about grace. Well, then we have to know what grace is. We have to understand what it is. And grace is God's unconditioned goodwill towards men and women, which is decisively expressed in the saving work of Christ. Grace is God's unmerited gift of salvation through Christ. We can break that down a little bit. And we say grace is unconditioned goodwill or unmerited gift. And it's this idea that we don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. That we somehow did not have to please the fa our Father in heaven so that he would look upon us with a smile. No, of his own goodwill, of his own saving love, he decides to look upon us and love us when we were unlovable. We have done nothing to earn it or achieve it. And this is love being expressed in a specific and real way. And what is that real way? Him saving us through Jesus Christ. 
The grace is the fact that God loves us so much that while we are still sinners, he sends his son to live the perfect life we could not live, to die the, lo- the death that we all deserve, to rise again, showing how he's victorious over death and he's defeated the sin, death, and the devil, and now reigns forever in heaven with his father and one day is going to come back to bring to completion his whole salvation plan. This is a great news, the gospel undergirded by this fact of grace that he gives us to us of no cost, no earning, no achievement on our part. So he bookends his letters with this concept. But it's not just the letters. He, I would argue he bookends the Christian life with this concept of grace. That grace starts the Christian life, it continues us through the Christian life, and it brings us to completion. That he gives us the salvation that we need. He strengthens our faith and gives us everything we need to follow, and that he will bring us home to his kingdom in the end. Grace starts it, continues it, and finishes it. It bookends the Christian life, and it bookends the church as well. The church is gathered and founded by this concept. It's not like the church got together and said, hey, I, I have a great idea. Let's just come up with this idea. No, we recognize how God has saved us and it brings us together and now it bookends the church that we're brought in by grace. We continue in by grace and we will bring, we'll be together forever as we live here by grace. This is the amazing fact that grace binds their church together. And when we look at these people in Colossians chapter 4, we see what this grace does. And we see what the gospel does. We see how it changes people and brings people to work and brings people to serve and brings people to have a new life all based in Jesus Christ. So we read these names and we notice, first off, that this grace that saves us is a sending grace. That she sends some people out. That grace has a way of changing our lives and the directions in which we're going. I mean, we know this fundamentally. If you know Jesus Christ, you know this fundamentally because you might have been headed one direction and then God gets a hold of you and it changes the direction of your life. It changes where you are headed. It changes maybe your purpose and your meaning. It changes how you see the, the, the um, end of your life being. It changes the directions and it sends us in a new direction. And we just have to look at some of these names that, that Paul lists to see this in action. In verses 7 and 8, right at the beginning, we're introduced to this guy, Tychicus. Fun name to say. But he's apparently the guy who's carrying this letter from, from Paul to Colossia. He is the one who's carrying the letter. And actually, if you read Ephesians, he's the one that carried the letter to the Ephesians. And if you read Titus, he's the one who carried the letter to Titus while he was in Crete. And so you get this aspect that Titicus is Paul's letter carrier. That's what he is. He's Paul's good friend who's in the ministry with him. And Paul says, hey, I need to communicate with someone and I'm going to send my good buddy Titicus and he's going to deliver this letter. That grace grabbed hold of Titicus and changed him. He made him see how he's part of, uh, supposed to be part of the community of grace. He's supposed to be part of this mission to bring the word to all people. And he's given this task that sends him out. That this guy is now going where Paul directs him, where God directs him to make sure people know who he is. Sends him out on mission. But if we continue down, we see another name in verses 
12 and 13, we see Epaphras. And Epaphras is mentioned back in chapter 1 of Colossians. He actually was the guy who heard Paul speak probably in uh, Ephesus, and he took the gospel back to his hometown of Colossia. He's one of them. And so Paul talks about him, how he was sent. This is Epaphras. He hears the gospel, and where does he go? Instead of being sent out, he goes back home because he knows his brothers and sisters back home need to hear who Jesus is. And he has a heart for them, and he he labors them, and he was probably integral in building that church that Paul is writing to right now. And so we see this amazing fact that God grabs hold of someone, grace grabs hold of someone, and sends them. Sometimes it sends them out, sometimes it sends them back home, but it sends them to where the word needs to be heard. This is an amazing fact about grace that Tychus goes to different locations, Epaphras goes back home, but they're both sent. And the amazing thing, my family, brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, you are sent. That grace has grabbed hold of you, it changes you, and you have been sent out. And sometimes we're like, well, I don't feel like I've been sent, but you have. God has placed you exactly where you are for his purposes to proclaim his word. You have been sent. You might have this urge, and you might say, hey, I might be sent as a missionary again and travel across the seas. Maybe, or maybe you're just sent back to your family that does not believe and they need to hear the word of God. Maybe you're just sent back into your workplace that needs to know who Jesus is. Maybe you're sent back into your school and your and your fellow classmates need to hold Jesus. No matter where you are, you are sent, just like Tychicus and Epaphras. When gra- grace grabs hold of you, grace sends you back or out or somewhere to make known the word of God because that is how the church grows and expands. That people hear about who Jesus is. Grace binds the church together. Grace also transforms us. I love these, these, some of these names mentioned in the backstories they have. It's in verse 9, he mentions um, Onesimus. Onesimus is the subject letter of, uh, the subject of the letter of Philemon that Paul writes. Onesimus was a runaway, runaway um, bondservant that he had a master, Philmon, and he left him. And somehow he ends up in Rome, and he encounters Paul, and we don't know when he becomes Christian, we don't know if he ran away as a Christian or if he became a Christian when he met Paul, but somehow grace grabs hold of him, and Paul sends him back. Why? Because grace transforms us. That, that this guy who was a rebel, he left what he had to be doing, what he had to be serving, his rightful master, he had left him. And Paul says, you go back. Why? Because you are his brother and you don't wrong him like that. You go back and you are reconciled with him. That grace changed them. And he says, I am going back to be reconciled with my people back in Colossia. Grace transforms us. And we just read on and we see in verse 10 how Paul mentions Mark, the cousin of Barabbas. And if you remember in the book of Acts, this Mark guy, Mark John, Mark John Mark, 
Uh, this guy is the reason that Paul and Barabbas split. And their great missionary team from the first missionary journey split over this guy. Why? Because Mark, when the going got tough, apparently, decided to go home, and Paul didn't like that. And so now when Barabbas, uh, Barnabas, I'm sorry, Barnabas, did I say Barabbas before? Wrong guy. Barnabas, now when Barnabas wants to get the team back together for round two, there's a fight because Paul says, I'm not taking Mark. And apparently Barnabas says, he's my cousin, we're taking him. And so there's a fight in the rift and they, they break apart. But now, many years later, Paul is writing and says, Mark, if he comes to you, greet him warmly. I've given you instructions about him. Somehow, through grace, Paul and Mark have been reconciled. That Paul has changed. That he is actually recognizing that this guy, Mark, gets a second chance at the ministry. He gets a second chance in the mission field. It says, if you see him, recognize him and greet him as a brother. And so we see how grace grabs hold of people and it changes us, transforms us. It reconciles people together. Some of us, some of you, might have a relationship with a brother and sister in faith that needs to be reconciled. Some of us maybe have let an argument go on too long or distance to grow too great, and we need to be reconciled to one another. He might be saying, man, the gulf has grown too great. The offense is too big. How could I possibly do that? Don't belittle God's grace that can bring us together, can take a runaway bond servant, a runaway slave, and have him go back home and be reconciled to his master who can take Paul and recognize that he's wrong and admit that Mark can be used by God. That is the power of grace that can reconcile us together. And so no matter what is going on in our lives with our arguments with our brothers and sisters, God's grace can be active in, in it and can reconcile us together and bring us back together. What we, as I said, is that transforming grace. We are reconciled because we are transformed. Because we, who are sinners, are transformed into saints. We, who are orphans, are transformed into sons and daughters of the Most High. We who wanted nothing to do with God are transformed now into worshipers and followers of God. That grace transforms us. Just like it took someone who's in rebellion and transformed him to be obedient to their brother in the faith. Just like it transforms Paul to recognize his wrong and take that step for reconciliation. Grace transforms us. It has transformed you if you know Jesus Christ you have been changed by him from the inside out. That grace has done this and it binds the church together. We also see how grace binds the church and builds the church. For just notice the diversity of these names listed. We've always already mentioned Tychicus and Epaphras and Onesimus and Mark, uh, but we have Aristarchus, a Jewish Christian that apparently was in prison with Paul. He was a native of Thessalonica. 
So he had traveled with Paul. He had probably come to be a Christian at Paul's missionary journey, and now he traveled with him, willing to actually be imprisoned with him for the ministry. We have Jesus, who's called Justice, another Jewish Christian like Paul that we really don't know anything else about. But we have Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts and who traveled with Paul. Fun fact, if you read the book of Acts and you see how it talks about we went into this or we went here, that's Luke writing it, saying, I'm with Paul, right, experiencing what he is. He's also this physician who's been traveling with them. We have uh, Demas, a Gentile Christian, just like Luke is Gentile, who's been traveling with Paul, has been used by Paul. He's actually not mentioned that flattery way in 2 Timothy. We have Nympha, who is in Laodicea, a, a sister city of Colossia, and she apparently is hosting a church in her home. The only woman listed at this group, but apparently she is opening up a home and the church was meeting in her, home, in her house. We have um, Acrippus, who is a member of a household in Colossia, who's being encouraged. And so we look at this diversity, Gentiles and Jewish people, men and women, people from so many different cities of the empire now are brought together to form a community. Now are brought together to be called brothers and sisters, fellow workmen, fellow prisoners. This is the diversity of the church being displayed for us. How God takes people from so many different backgrounds and he brings them together and he, and he makes them the church. Uses them as the church. And we can ask, what can explain this diverse church? What can do that? And it's only the grace of God that changes us, gives us a new identity, gives us a new allegiance, can bring people together who love each other and support each other. And the same thing happens today. It's not just a fact that how God brought the early church together. No, it's how God brings this church together. Because we can look to people around us and we can see people who are not like us. We can see people from diverse backgrounds. We can see people from, from uh, different upbringings. We can see people from even different cities or, or all of this. And yet it brings us together. We see people from different political affiliations, different people who think things should happen differently in our government or in our society at large, but it brings us together at a tighter, higher, better, bigger, more fundamental allegiance in Jesus Christ. That is what grace does, is that it builds the community of grace and makes us God's people who love each other, serve each other, and want to be with each other. Proclaiming the gospel once again to each other, and then proclaiming it out to community that, so that they can also be included with us. Grace binds the church together, which means it should mark the church. That grace should be a marker of the church, that when the community of God gathers together, one of the big fundamental markers people see is grace. We see people who forgive each other. We see people who love each other. We see people who say, you don't have to scratch my back for me to scratch your back, but I love you and serve you anyway. We see a community found and bounded by not whether we like each other or not, but the fact that God brings us into together a family and we love each other because of that. We see grace marking this community out 
where we understand that if we don't deserve God's love, then someone else doesn't have to deserve my love for me to lavish it upon them just like God lavishes love upon me. That grace starts marking this community in a fundamental way, which means it changes how we view one another. That grace actually can make us stop being so critical or judgmental of one another. And we realize we can forgive one another because we have been forgiven the most by our God. And we realize that we are all sinners who are stumbling together towards Christ. And so let's stumble together, loving each other and serving one another. It changes how we view one another. It also changes how we view ourselves. That we can be encouraged by we read this list in the book of Colossians and we see that everyone has a story, this background about how grace has transformed them and the same is true for us. When you look at yourself, you might say, man, my testimony is not that amazing. I grew up in the church. It's not that fantastic. I still struggle. No, that's grace at work. Everyone who knows Jesus Christ has a powerful story because God grabs hold of them and changes them and it relates to other people and it shows how God is still working in our communities. And so it changes how we view ourselves. We can stop beating ourselves up because we're not the perfect Christian because we will never be the perfect Christian. Grace binds us together and shows us that he has done it and now we respond from that new life he gives us as well as we can as he gives us the energy to walk in his ways and we can let go of how we have messed up in the past because grace has brought us in and we celebrate it. It changes how we view ourselves and it changes how we view the community at large, this community that we make it one marked by grace. That it starts with us. We make sure people are welcomed, encouraged, loved, and even challenged to follow Christ, where we can actually be open and admit where we fall short because we're marked by grace, and we know that does not change our value in God's eyes. That He loves us. And we can be reconciled to one another even when we have sinned or we have been sinned against. It changes the very community that we live in. So let, chain, let grace change your view. And let's live in light of God's grace. Because grace binds the church together. You know, there is a reason that the song Amazing Grace has stood the test of time, and has woven itself into fabric of our society in the Western world. That ever since John Newton, the former slave trader turned Christian minister, penned those words, it has expressed to people in their heart the truth that they have experienced. That they know the fact of how grace has saved them and brought them to where they are. That People who are not even Christians, but folk bands and people who like to sing songs sing the song all the time because they, they resonate with something inside of it. What is it saying? Because it's saying this truth that we all need, this truth that we depend upon, that God's grace truly is amazing, that he loves us in spite of who we are, that we can sing out loud and proud and with joy, sing out loud and clear, rejoicing in the fact that God has saved us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Grace saves us 
transforms us, sends us, reconciles us, builds us into the church. Grace binds the church together. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word that we can read it, we can respond to it, we can see the truth of who you are and your love. Lord, I just pray that we can be truly a community marked by grace, a community that knows the truth of how we're saved and lives in light of it. Lord, I just pray that we can respond to this amazing salvation we have in Jesus Christ so that we can be yours in all that we do. That we can respond to you with all of our lives. That we can realize that you love us and your love does not change depending on how we act or how we respond to your love. Your love does not change. You're, you're not frowning upon us when we mess up. But you love us in spite of ourselves. Lord, we love you and we respond and we respond with our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.